0: And it's so good to be with all of you. So welcome to our guests. If you're visiting either here or at home, online, or down the road, we're really glad you're checking us out today. So we're wrapping up our series called Asking for a Friend. And if you've been at Kingsway for more than one week, you know I tend to have this thing here, and I don't know why, because I don't hardly ever use it. I tend to live out here a little bit, and maybe even out here a little bit more, and uh, that's usually why I go along. I just start talking. So, Today is such an important topic, such a difficult topic. I'm going to be living with notes a lot more than usual until we get closer to the end. And while today's subject is on a difficult matter that maybe if you're visiting with us, you had no idea this is what we were going to be talking about at church today, uh, we do believe that there is something in here for everybody, everybody in here. I had a gentleman come to me after last service with tears in his eyes. Um, he went through a divorce a couple years ago and just let me know, he was so thankful um, for the church and some of the things that were said today had nothing to do with what he was struggling with, but God spoke to him. And I don't know where you're coming from or what you're dealing with, but I believe that will be your story today. So for everybody, be gracious with me and stick with me now. All right, here we go. I'm going to jump in. Today, we're wrapping up our series, Asking for a Friend. And in this series, we gave the church a list of questions and had them vote on the ones they wanted to hear about the most. We've taken on some really hard subjects, From what happens when I die, to dealing with miracles, to sexuality issues, and now this week we're speaking on trans and intersex questions. If you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're here. We're also terribly sorry if you were unaware this was the subject for today. While today's message will be appropriate for likely, say, fifth grade and up, it's important that you as a parent make the decision that you think is best based off what you know your child knows. And if you need to step out now, I completely understand. So for those who remain watching either online or you're in the room, there's just no way in 35 minutes that I could say everything there is to say or everything that needs to be said. In fact, after the last service, some people came up to me with some questions about my opinion on certain things. I just didn't have time to cover everything. That's why we prepared some resources for you to take this conversation deeper should you want to or need to find out more. You can go to kingswaychurch.org asking-for-a-friend. And I know you say, why do you have to say all that? We can read, but those who are listening to the podcast can't, so also you can just go to kingswaychurch.org and you'll find this link to there. I don't know how long we'll be able to leave that live, so just search in your toolbar for asking for a friend and you'll find the resources there. Now, before we go any further, let's just stop and pray, all right? Heavenly Father, God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. You are abundantly merciful and kind to all of us. So God, uh, no matter where we are coming into this conversation today, I pray, God, that you would teach us, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. God, may we not walk out of here and just have heard another message. But Father, instead, may we truly come into your presence and hear from you. And then God, may we hear from you in a way that challenges us to align our hearts with yours. And God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple months ago, Care to Change Counseling here hosted a religious leaders forum to discuss the LGBTQ plus issues. I sat in a room full of local pastors and clergy and was humbled by those who spoke. One of the presenters was a former family of Kingsway that left not too long ago. Part of their leaving was because their child now identified as trans, And Kingsway just simply didn't have the resources they needed to work through it. As I shook their hand afterward and both apologized for not knowing and thanking them for their presentation, a warm smile and grace was given that they were in no way bitter at us for not having resources. The reality is that as a community, this kind of story is increasing in frequency and even within our own church. It was only about a month after that, roughly a month ago now, that I sat with another KCC family who informed me that their child also identified with something called gender dysphoria. We will talk about that, so hang on if you don't know what that means. It's okay. So I want to be clear about what today is about and what today isn't about since I only have 35 minutes and now down to 30, give or take. All right. Today is not about having a political discussion. Everybody hear me on this? This is not about rallying the troops for some battle or something like that. Also, it is not a counseling session with anybody hurting or aching to find out your own answers to stresses or questions that you might have. Those things may have their time or place. It's just not right now. So what I wanna do is I wanna answer these two questions with our time today. Question number one, does the Bible reveal anything for us about the trans conversation? And then number two, how should we as Christians act towards the trans community? It's important for everybody here but especially for those of us who call Jesus Lord. It's important that we don't make God who we want him to be. It's also important for anyone tuning into this message to know that we at Kingsway believe that God is the sole authority for a good and satisfying life that will last for eternity. Here at Kingsway, we believe God has revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible, and that we can trust the Bible and we can therefore also trust him. Now, I am a pastor. I am not an expert in trans identities or issues. I would estimate that I've spent at least the last 12 months studying the subject, reading a number of articles, blogs, books, in addition to videos and podcasts, and I would say I have totaled upwards of 30 plus hours. I would probably guess closer to 50 or 60, but just to be conservative, 30 plus hours, so now let's just jump in. I'm gonna share some things that I've learned with everybody here, ready? There are several ways to think about a person's sex. Sex can refer to biological makeup or composition. For instance, men have an XY chromosome. Women have an XX chromosome. There are hormonal and reproductive differences between men and women that result from the chromosomal difference, the XX or the XY. From our bodies all the way down to our cells, the biological sex of those born men and those born women are different. Then there are also what we call primary sex characteristics. Those refer to the differences in reproductive systems. The male system and the female system are different. There are also something called secondary sex characteristics. And those refer to the other general physical differences between adult men and women. For example, men tend to have broader shoulders and be taller than women. Clearly, this is tend to, because in my case, it didn't happen. I know I look real tall on stage. (laughs) Women tend to have wider hips and tend to be shorter. I remember one time as a teenager, I was doing the laundry. I ended up taking a pair of jeans that were my sister's. We were at that point. She was older than me, so I'd grown to her height, and I didn't know that I'd grabbed her pants. I just was a clueless teenager, not paying attention. And when I put them on, I realized they just, even though they fit me in the waist, even though they fit me in the length, they didn't fit the same. They were shaped different because her body was shaped different. Now, according to the American Psychological Association, the APA, which I realize isn't scripture, so everybody here who comes to Kingsway, like take a deep breath for a second, but they say gender refers to the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. Behavior that is compatible with cultural expectations is referred to as gender normative. So you may have heard that phrase, gender normative. You didn't know what it meant. Behaviors that are viewed as incompatible with those expectations constitute gender non-conformity. And again, you may have heard that phrase, you didn't know what it meant. Now you know. This is a great quote from a book that I have listed on the website where I showed you from a guy named Andrew Walker called The God God in the Transgender Debate. And he says this, because of advances in medical science, we are the first generation that are able to seek to make sex follow gender rather than the other way around. There are now medical procedures that allow people whose sex is male and who identify their gender as female to have their bodies surgically reshaped to reflect that female gender. And that leads us to a new term gender identity. Gender identity is a person's self-perception of whether they are male or female, masculine or feminine. All of us have a gender identity. Some people feel their gender identity does not align with their biological sex. When someone experiences distress, inner anguish, or discomfort from sensing a conflict between their gender identity and their biological sex, that person is said to be experiencing gender dysphoria. So you may not know that phrase. Again, you may have heard it thrown around. That's what the phrase means. It's a mismatch between the gender that matches their biological sex and the gender that they feel themselves to be. It is crucial to understand that this is a genuine experience. Nobody here is saying they don't actually feel the way they feel. People with, I touched my notes and it jumped on me, People with gender dysphoria experience the feeling that their biological body is lying. A person in this situation really thinks that he or she is, should be, or would feel better as the gender that is opposite to their biological sex or no gender at all. Now, you often hear the phrase transgender or transsexual. This is way above my pay grade for reasons I do not yet fully understand The most common phrase today is trans, and just kind of leaving it at that. But trans is an umbrella term for the state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not match a person's genetic sex. So there, we've at least got some terms on the table. You may not have been able to keep up with all of that. You can go back and listen to this later or read some of these articles that may be helpful for you. But now let's answer this question. Does the Bible reveal anything for us about the trans conversation? We gotta start here where the Bible starts. Genesis chapter one verse one says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this is important because what the Bible is laying out for us is that there is a God, a creator God, and he is sovereign over all creation. Now sovereignty in America doesn't mean much to us because we have presidents and we elect them and then immediately regret our decisions. This is normal, doesn't matter which side you land on, you always seem to regret the person that's in office and wish they'd do something different because you really wish you were the one in office. And therein lies the big picture. In a land where perhaps you have kings or dictators or whatever, they are considered sovereign over the land. The people, the lands, everything belongs to them. That's the concept of sovereignty. Everything in the world, in the universe, is created by God. Therefore, he is sovereign over all creation. Everything belongs to him. Now, the next few verses of Genesis chapter 1 goes to lay out the way that God created. He put the stars in place. He put the animals. He put the trees. He put all the things in place. And the last thing he got to was humans. And we pick that up at Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let's just stop there for a second. So God's creation mandate was go mankind and rule, reign. So the one who has all authority and power has handed authority and power over to the ones he has made. He's given you a piece of his power and authority. We'll deal with that more as we go. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And how did he create them? Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number." Now, in August, we covered the earlier part, which I spoke of, which God intended for us to rule and reign on his earth. But here, what I want you to notice is when God made male and female, and he made the body parts to correlate to those two things, his intention was we would be image bearers who would multiply his image over and over and over again on the earth. Now, this is not we're not going theologically into what does it mean to be an image bearer, but there is something profound in the statement that God intended for us to do that, male and female together. When we jump over to chapter two of Genesis, when you look at Genesis one, you kind of see a summary of the whole story. That Genesis two zooms in on like the second half of day six, basically, kind of right there halfway through the day and on, or however long it was in the day, and zooms in on day six there and, and gives us a more specific picture of what that looks like. In Genesis chapter two, verse 21, it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. See, when he first made mankind, he made just an Adam. And Adam looks around at creation, and he feels lonely, because The male lion has a female lion. The male elephant has a female elephant. I don't actually know what animals were present in the garden, but you get the idea. And he looks around and he goes, wow, everybody has a counterpart except for me. And God says, yes, this is not good, Adam, well done. So he puts him into his sleep, and he takes out one of his ribs, and he makes woman for, for Adam. We call her Eve. We call him Adam. The very next part here, verse 23 You'll notice it's got different lines, even if you open up your own Bible. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And when you see this like this, see how it's arranged differently, it tells you it's Hebrew poetry. The first love song ever written was written by the Bible, by the first man, about his woman. Love songs are from God. The man said, it's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then he goes on in verse 24, and Genesis says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I don't have a ton of time to go here now. At the end, if I remember to refer back to this, I will, but this concept will be extremely relevant for us later. Because essentially, right here, Adam and Eve are walking in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. Something that the Bible calls sin, which is rebellion against God, has not entered the picture. And because of that, they are comfortable being naked in front of each other and having no shame. In the next chapter, when sin enters the story, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do is they run into the bushes and start to hide from each other, and they are suddenly hyper conscious and hyper aware of their bodies they are suddenly very 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 ashamed of how they look and how they feel now i'll come back to that later towards the end but i may not remember to reference this passage this is important because not only is this in genesis which if you're thinking critically you can say well that's the first book of the bible that's old testament that's really old thousands of years old you know is that relevant for us today But Jesus picks up on this exact same theme in Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 10. We're gonna look at Matthew 19. And um, he's asked a question about divorce. And he says this, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? Now, why is that powerful? For one, the reason he stresses the creator is because he's stressing sovereignty. The one who created all things made them this way, male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Sound familiar? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, the reason that Jesus goes into this is to lay the foundation, the way we should think about marital relationships, the way that we should think about uh, human beings is from this pre-sin pre-fall context it's the purest vision version that we have of what humans could look like or should look like again from god and the transgender debate andrew walker says god designed humanity in male and female forms he chose to create two halves not thirds not eights or in one single type what is a man Genesis tells us that a man is a human who could be united to a woman, a a wife, with whom he can physically become one flesh. A person with male anatomy is reflecting physically the fact that they are created a man. A person with female anatomy is reflecting that she is a woman. Maleness isn't only anatomy, but anatomy shows that there is femaleness. Men and women are more than just their anatomy, but they are not less. Our anatomy tells us what gender we are. Our bodies do not lie to us. I get it. If perhaps you struggle with gender dysphoria, I promise we will get there in just a minute. Just be gracious with me, please, just a moment longer. This is usually the point where somebody brings up, but what about intersex people? You may be familiar, there there are letters um, that have increased and I seriously cannot remember them all. I am inserting no joke here. But when you get to the LGBTQI, the I stands for intersex. Intersex does not mean neither male nor female. There are more than 16 different conditions that are classified as intersex. Sometimes they're called DSD, which means differences of sex development, or disorders of sex development. These conditions include atypical features and a person's sex chromosomes, reproductive organs, or anatomical sex. It could be a combination of those two or all three of those things, but that's what's created the condition. They could have enlarged parts. They could have smaller parts. They can, in rare cases, have extra parts. Depending on which conditions are being considered, the prevalence of intersex conditions range anywhere from point 0.22% 0.22% of the population to 1.7% of the population. It's been estimated that as many as 99% of people who have an intersex condition are unambiguously male or female. So if it's 002 percent even if it's 1%, 99% of the 1%, it is absolutely not at all in question whether they are male or female. Does this mean that people with situations like this are some kind of third sex? I think Preston Sprinkle said it best in his book called Embodied. He said, I find it more helpful to say that such people, beautiful people, created in God's image and worthy of respect and value and admiration are a blend of the two biological sexes rather than a third kind of sex. As Andrew Walker, again, from God of the Transgender Debate says, but a critical reader may respond. How can you say it is possible to deviate from the binary norm in the case of intersex people, but not possible for transgender people to legitimately differ from that norm? The answer is that in cases involving intersex persons, there are body, chromosomal, and or anatomical abnormalities that are medically diagnosable and empirically verifiable. No such parallel exists in the case of transgenderism because no definitive conclusion as to its cause can be determined, nor is it empirically verifiable. It's a psychological construct. A transgender individual who identifies as a member of the sex different than their biological sex does not become an authentic member of the opposite sex just because they will such a change. While dysphoria is a real phenomenon, just... Hang out there for a second. Go to the next slide for me. There you go. Dysphoria is a real phenomenon. We don't at all want to dismiss that. And we'll talk about it in just a moment, just a bit more. But there are real people, some in our church, many in our community, who feel uncomfortable, like they are out of their own body. That reality does not in itself make it possible, though, for someone to actually be a member of the opposite sex. How should we, though, as Christians, act towards the trans community? First, let me say this. Gender dysphoria is not a sin. Gender dysphoria is not a sin. And we must be careful not to treat it as such. I don't want to make too much of this verse, because it's not dealing specifically with this, but I find this first part powerful. James chapter 3, verse 2, says, we all stumble in many ways. This James here, watch out for that, this James here is the half-brother of Jesus. They have the same mom and a different dad. And we see throughout the Gospels, the histories of Jesus, we see that he is not a believer through some of his life. I mean, you can imagine, like you thought your brother or sister was hard to be raised with, imagine being raised with Jesus as your big brother. So at some point, much later down the road, James gets over his doubts. He gets over his anxieties. He gets over his frustrations or fears or whatever it might be. And he comes to faith. It becomes a pillar, a leader in the early church. And he writes, we all stumble in many ways. And I find that powerful because church, let us be very careful not to cast a stone at somebody else who struggle with something different than what we struggle with. Has anybody else in here ever felt uncomfortable in your body? Does anybody else in here wish they were taller than they are? Or Andy Lynch, perhaps shorter than you are? (laughs) I watch him duck under every doorway. Or perhaps skinnier than you are, or more athletic than you are, just a little smarter, understood certain things better than you do. Anybody else wish they had a different color hair or skin or whatever it might be? The reality is, we live in a world where we feel shame. And Some of that shame comes from the sin that we've done, some of that shame comes from the sin others have done to us, and some of it just comes from living in a world where no matter how hard you try, it's never enough. So church, let us be very careful not to be judgmental and casting stones over others who are struggling. And let us be unbelievably patient, like James who some may need more time to get to Jesus. And they may need a safe place to explore Jesus without the condemning words or eyes of others. I think it's fascinating that this very passage comes in James 3, where James is specifically talking about the power of the tongue and that of all the muscles in the body, perhaps it is the most powerful. He says, in the same way, that a rudder controls a ship. A small little thing under the water controls the whole ship. Or the same way that a tiny spark could set a huge forest on fire, the tongue has that same kind of power in it. And that's why he says anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So we all stumble, but let us be very careful how we use our tongues. We can either build up or tear Which leads me to the second thing I wanna say to the Christians in listening in with us today. All people are made in God's image, all of them. So treat everyone with dignity and value. Everybody you meet is dealing with something, especially yours truly, who's standing up here speaking today. I want to continue to be more like Jesus. I want to continue to understand Jesus more. But man, I'm digging into his word. And he keeps bringing up things that he wants me to grow in and challenge me in and change and transform. And I'm so thankful he does. But it's important that we don't start to think of it as an us and them situation. Because let's be honest for a minute, there's way too much of that going on in America today. Your battle my Christian brothers and sisters, is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers in the unseen realms. Never forget that. We don't win battles there by fighting. We win battles there on our knees with the truth of God and love. So think very carefully how you act because everything I'm about to tell you, it's, tough to work out. It's hard. It takes thinking and processing and discernment. Now, to anybody in this room, this is where I said, this sermon will have a lot of application for a lot of people, even if you don't struggle with gender dysphoria. I want to speak specifically to those dealing with gender dysphoria, but also say, what I'm about to read to you, I think will apply at a wider audience. Now, one of my friends and mentors... Uh, I'll try to leave some details out so that maybe nobody in here would figure out who he is. But uh, when he was a young man, he was molested by a baseball coach. He had an absent father situation anyway, and it left him struggling uh, for quite some time with a number of issues. We all stumble in many ways. And when I was under his uh, mentoring and love, he shared with me what was one of his favorite Bible verses. I can be honest, I don't know if I'd ever read it at that point. If I had, it didn't mean much to me till I started seeing the verse through his eyes. Here's the passage. Psalm 139. I'm gonna start in verse 13, though I encourage you to read all of it. This is King David, and he says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Again, David is thinking about this. Now, what we do today is we break everything down into a science conversation, right? Male and female get together, there's exchanging of chemicals, and babies pop out. And this is why it is easy for us, let me clarify, it is easy for Americans to be pro-abortion, if two people got together and they didn't mean for it to happen. It was an accident. It's okay. What the scriptures affirm for us and what David is pondering here is he's just thinking about who God is. He's saying, you know what? There was more than just a male and a female involved in this act, there was a third party, God Himself. And this is why He goes on and says, You created me, you knit me together. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that part right there to my friend jumped out because he knew, even though he struggled all the time with who he really is, what it really meant, he knew that he wasn't an accident. He knew that there was meaning and purpose to his life and whatever his strengths and weaknesses and frailties and fragilities were, God fearfully and wonderfully made him. And this verse baffles me. I have looked up in the Hebrew and in the Greek for the Septuagint. What does "fearfully made" mean? And I don't know. It drives me crazy. I'm one of those people that can't accept an answer. I need to know at least with some amount of confidence that it's the answer. Why did he use the word "fearfully"? God's not sitting back, afraid of making him. What does it mean? Here's the best that I can conclude, and I reserve the right to change my mind down the road. In the garden. When God made Adam and God made Eve, he told them, enjoy this beautiful place I made for you to rule and reign on. Enjoy each other. It was like the beautiful, most beautiful romance story of all time. Two naked people frolicking in the garden and enjoying the animals and no fear, no anxiety, nothing. And there's one thing you need to be afraid of. There's this one tree here in the garden. Watch out. Stay away from it. Trust me. I know what's best for you. And we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, which we didn't read today. They were unable to stay away from the tree. And what happened for Adam and Eve is they stopped fearing God. And what that meant was, not that they literally were like terrified of God. No, they walked with him and talked with them. They had this beautiful relationship like Jesus wants to have with us. And they had it. But they stopped believing that God knew more and God knew better. And they started believing that maybe, just maybe, God wasn't trustworthy and he was holding out on them and there was something better if they just didn't listen. So they ate the fruit and we've all been feeling the weight of it ever since. Interestingly enough, in the book of Proverbs, it's the only other time the tree of life is mentioned before the book of Revelation. It's like we get the beginning, the middle, and the end. And in the book of Proverbs, We're told wisdom is like a tree of life because God is taking us back to the garden to restore things. And there we're told the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, if you wanna get back to Edenic type of state, back to like an Eden, back to a walking relationship with God where things are beautiful and you won't have brokenness between you and other people, you have to start with a fear of God. And I think David is pondering all of this and saying, when I was in my mother's womb, man, this this knowledge, this understanding, it terrifies me. It scares me that you are so big and so powerful and so otherly, and yet you fashioned me and created me. And so even my strong parts, you knew about them. My weak parts, you were aware of them, and they weren't a problem for you. And that's why he could say, and I am wonderfully made. Because he's bringing all of this to bear into a conversation he's going, I am not understanding or grasping or worthy of all these things, but God, I am terribly afraid of your power and terribly aware of how much you love me. And that's why he goes on in verse 15, he says, my frame was not hidden from you. Like the rest of the world, especially this is pre-ultrasound, right? The rest of the world couldn't see anything, but you could see it all. When I was made in this secret place, When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, God, you are the God who makes known the end from the beginning. You knew where this whole story was going and that wasn't a problem for you. There's no moment of my life that before I even popped out and was breathing air that you weren't aware of. And yet you loved me and yet you cared for me. Listen to all of my brothers and sisters in the room who may be struggling with gender dysphoria. God fashioned you just as he intended. And he loves you. He crazy loves you. And you are beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully made. And your life has meaning and purpose. And he has a reason for you. You are not here on accident. Then he goes on and he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I'm sitting here pondering your ways, your thoughts, even your thoughts of me. And the number of them is so big, all the grains and all the sand and all the world. It's not enough. And I am confident that no matter what I'm going through, no matter what insecurities I've faced, no matter what fears or troubles or hardships, I am still with you. That's why James at James 3 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Church, let us be the ones in our community. I realize there are a lot of hard questions I don't even have time to give you my opinion on, but let us be the ones who find a way to give dignity and value every chance we get. Lastly, Train yourself to act like Jesus. And it's gonna be hard. I promise you it's gonna be hard. Jesus confronts me and offends me on a regular basis with the things that n- n- yet need changed, and not about my wife and kids, but about me. He's constantly pointing out ways that I'm too harsh or too gruff or too impatient or too selfish, but he does it because he loves me and he wants me to act and think like him. It takes training But one way I want you to think about Jesus in this world, in Matthew chapter 12, a prophecy from Isaiah, 750 years or so before Jesus is, is read about his ministry, and it says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So again, this is a beautiful picture, but it's just a picture. Jesus will not take a bruised reed. You ever walk along, say, a swamp of some sort, you got the reeds there? I mean, those are the ones that are like bent over already. They're great to just grab, yank off, and hit your kids with. I love the dude. But in the analogy, Jesus won't. When Jesus comes across one who's bruised, when Jesus comes across one who's wounded or traumatized, he will not break it. In fact, if you build on this, he will bind it up and nurture it back to strong vital life. How do we be like Jesus then and not further wound or break, but build up? And then same kind of analogy. A smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. You know when a candle, you light a candle and the candle is just starting to go out. He's gonna go in and he's not gonna say, well, let's just go ahead and put that one out, it's done. No, he's gonna go and whew, how do we nurture this back to life? How do we get a flame burning in here again? How do we train ourselves to see the world the way Jesus sees it? Which leads perfectly to this. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you think for a moment that what Jesus longs to do is to beat you up or hurt you or tear you down, you do not understand his heart. He longs to heal you, to free you, to grow you. But he longs to do that with the truth and the love together. Jesus says the truth will set us free. So church, we can never back down from what God's word says, even if it's not popular. But we don't back down from all that the word says about praying for our enemies, loving other people, not treating other people harshly when they treat us harshly. So whatever you're facing, find the bruised reed and love it, care for it, nurture it, and trust the strength and the courage of God to help you. Now what I wanna do is I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. But I want to do this different than we've been doing it. This is not about gender dysphoria or transgenderism or intersex or anything. This is about the human heart. We need a savior. We need a savior who loves us like that. We need one who will carry our burdens and lead us into a right relationship with him. And I don't know where you are, and I don't know what brought you here today, but I want to call you into that relationship. But the way I want to do that is this. i want to ask everybody in here to close their eyes just close your eyes for a second and no cheating because all the other cheaters will see you cheating and they'll know (laughs) here it is if you are sensing god speaking to your heart drawing you into a relationship with him you may have more questions than answers but would you just do me a favor right now and just raise your hand nobody else could see you they've all got their eyes closed just raise your hand and we've got people they're gonna come to you and they're gonna hand you a card and have a brief conversation but we wanna come to you and come alongside you. You gotta raise it high enough for them to see. If you're ready to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, just raise your hand, just raise your hand. Raise it, it's okay. There's no fear. I got my eyes closed too, so I can't see you. And the rest of us right now are gonna pray for you and pray for God to move in our community. Heavenly Father, God, would you, would you take something from this message and use it to encourage us or challenge us? God, right now, I wanna pray for some parents that I know of at Kingsway and ones I don't know of whose children have recently expressed their confusion. Maybe they're identifying in one way or another. Father, the parents are scared for what this means. God, I pray for those parents that you would give them the the boldness and the love of Jesus. Would you help them, God, resource them, encourage them. May they not have to leave Kingsway to find some other place may we be a church that comes alongside them and says, we're in this together because at the end of the day, we all stumble at many times and in many ways. And God, I pray that you would help those parents to know how to best lead their own children as they also fall on their own knees before you. God, I pray for any person in this room of any age struggling with their identity and the gender dysphoria. God, I pray that you would reach in right now with the way that only you can and draw them near to yourself and let them know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's not a part of them, God, that you didn't know about and love about from before they even came out of the womb. And while there may be parts of our bodies and minds and hearts and lives that are wounded or tore up or confused or or whatever it might be, you are a good God, a faithful God, a trustworthy God, and we can trust you. So God, would you do that thing that only you could do? Would you heal the places that is so hard that we think it's impossible that nobody else could get in there and heal? God, would you heal it in us? And God, would you fashion in us a church, a church who loves all people in a way that truly is radical and looks a lot like Jesus? And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say,